You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. Welcome to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Sandler. Together, we'll discover the latest and greatest in experiential retail, marketing, and pop-ups. That means fashion, retail, restaurants, art, and entertainment. You're going to hear about new business models, creative strategies, and the latest technologies available that make pop-up sales and marketing effective for brands. Hi, everyone. Today, you are going to hear from Emmy Award-winning creative director and set designer David Korins. David is best known for his work on the Broadway play Hamilton, as well as creating the multi-dimensional worlds for shows including Dear Evan Hansen, recording artists Lady Gaga and Kanye West, the 91st Academy Awards, and global entities including Google, Twitter, Sotheby's, and many more. David has also received Lortel and Obie Awards, two Drama Desk Awards, three Henry Hughes Awards, and three Tony Award nominations. Welcome, David, to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's exciting. I'm so happy that you're with us today. Same. Obviously, there's a lot going on in the world. And I remember from your TED Talk that you talked about how emotions are revealed in color and light. So how are you feeling today? And what does that look like? Well, you know, I woke up this morning and I knew that I was going to record this podcast with you. So I was feeling very chartreuse, which for anyone who doesn't know is kind of a bright, hot, yellow, green mix. I was feeling energized and great. Then I got up. I realized I lived by the Hudson River and the wind is whipping off of the river. So my chartreuse kind of turned to like a steely blue, a little cool. And then I realized it was the election. I was a little pensive, feeling like, I don't know, some in-between color. And now talking to you, I'm feeling very shiny gloss black, which is slick, and goes well with everything. Well, I love that. It's a kaleidoscope. <laughs> it's true. Okay. So you have a very unique approach about how you work with clients to bridge the gap between the creative storytelling that needs to happen, the actual guest experience in an activation, and the sales that they're looking for, tickets or merch, products. So how do you approach a new project with the business goals in mind? Well, so almost every single thing that I design or create starts in the same way. There's always what I call, you know, in that TED talk that you referred to, there's always a period of time in the process that I like to think about as therapy. And what I mean by therapy is not really sitting there sharing feelings or deep, dark secrets, but kind of that where I sit down with a client, whether it's Lady Gaga or Lin-Manuel Miranda or a restaurateur or a brand or an institution or somebody. And I say, how are you feeling? And what are your ultimate goals? And what do you want the people who experience this thing to think, to feel, to believe, and to do? And it's actually really simple. The better questions you ask and the more questions you ask, the more you can sort of disarm people from their normal kind of pat answer that they may or may not be giving and kind of drill down into the true essence and the goal of the thing. So someone might say, I want them to connect to this music and I want them to feel contemplative or I want them to feel energized or I want this experience to be thought provoking. And someone might say, you know, I'd like all those things, but the truth is all we want to do is make a big, huge ripple in the advertising community. And we just want reshares, posts, original impressions or unique impressions of this thing online. And in the, in the end, they might say, you know what I really want is I don't care about any of this stuff. I just want to sell merch or I just want to sell product. And really understanding what those goals are, that is like the, the very top, 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 like of my mind, what I'm trying to get at. I use a lot of different like tricks and games and kind of questions that I ask my clients, my collaborators, to try and drill down because some people don't even, they're not even really and truly aware 
of what their ultimate goals are until you ask them a bunch of questions and you can sort of like tease it out of them. Exactly. Like I've gotten that call from the brand manager who said, we need to do a pop-up. And I'm like, why do you need to do a pop-up? <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. That Well, that's a really great question. Why? And then they might say something like, well, we do a lot of digital advertising. We do a lot of direct-to-consumer this and that. But what we want to do is have a, a three-dimensional presence. And you think, well, it's going to cost a different kind of money. It's going to attach to only a certain group of people. And what's the actual goal? Why pop up, right? And if you can answer that question, and then how do you want people to feel inside that pop up, then you can start kind of like pulling together all the tools in your toolbox and making a really interesting thing. So when you discover that, and you feel good about it, and you start to move into the design process, how much does budget affect that thinking? Or do you just kind of go into the creative and then worry about you know, the execution. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, I've been doing what I do for 25 years now. So I, I have a good sense when I say something like digital screen, I know what that costs. Or when I say fully immersed environment, including the ceiling, I know what that costs. Or a really interesting conveyor belt, I know what that costs. But I try to like just divorce myself from any thinking about money in the beginning and actually and truly pare down to what the like, what is the billion dollar version? If we, if there were total blue sky, blue sky, no budget, no time. What is the actual best case scenario of what we want to have happen here? Okay. It's like a Monsters Inc. version of a conveyor belt delivering products, like the doors in Monsters Inc. delivering products into someone's hand, dropping them from a fast moving conveyor belt and the most amazing, incredible, whatever that thing is. And then I pare it down and say, well, what is it about that Monsters, Inc. door reference that we love? Is it the kinetic movement? Is it the dynamicism? Is it about like something overhead? What is, you know, and then I sort of ask questions and poke holes at our own ideas, but it always starts with blue sky. Mm -hmm. Don't don't get caught up in like money, feasibility, time, any of those things. Imagination is free, right? And so I like to spend time in that blue sky phase because you can throw a million bad ideas against the wall and see what sticks. And I think that you can learn a lot from bad ideas, probably more about bad ideas than good ideas. And that's the, the moment where the, the design phase really kind of takes hold and gets traction. After you land on what you hope and, you know, what you hope for is a good idea. The design phase is an opportunity to just continue to redesign right? I, I always think like designing is about redesigning. No one hits the bullseye the first time out. And so in the design phase where everything's in paper and oftentimes two-dimensional or in a computer, you're sort of working through specifics. That's a time where you can continue to refine and refine and refine before you get into the next phase, which is really the execution of it. How do you take these really well thought out, really well planned out, really well drawn up, ideas and visions and how do you make them actually in three dimension and i feel like that's how that sausage gets made is really in in some ways the whole ball of wax because good ideas are a dime a dozen but the execution of them is everything and there's that moment where where we creatives get complete buy-in from everyone including the client and everyone and everyone looks at this thing and says yes i think i love this thing and then you build it and it this little tiny thing that you've looked at for three months or a year or five years or whatever it is and then all of a sudden people step inside of it and they think i didn't know it was going to be so big i didn't know it was going to be so small i didn't know it was going to look like that and you think wow how you interpret the tiny first version of it into the full scale version is so important yeah, and I think that's why it's important to have some contingency funds available. But the other thing is that I found in some circumstances that once the thing is built, it kind of can create its own revenue streams. So, you know, you're looking at it and you're thinking, wow, we can actually maybe bring in sponsorships to this or new partners. It, you know, it reveals revenue streams on its own. No doubt. I mean, I think with a Broadway show, I always think that you work for years and years and years until you actually get the design in, the show is up, you're running, you're in preview audiences, and you're waiting. You're actually spend that entire process getting to the place where you're in real time responding to audiences and you get a couple of rehearsals during the day and that's when the entire show gets formed. I feel the same thing about pop-ups and walkthrough experiences. These are not pieces of fine art that we're building in 
our art studios in our backyards. So these are the things that are completed with patrons that walk through it. And so something that you never could have anticipated, either an interesting wall surface or a, a portal or some big hole that you had to cut in it for a sprinkler system becomes an opportunity. And as you said, you, you might not even be aware of some of those things until the, the experience is sort of on its feet. I always like to build in not just a financial contingency, but you know, what I would call tech time, you load the thing in and then you bring a bunch of audience members through it to experience it, take feedback. And that's where this thing that I've called the audience barometer is so important. The audience barometer is a term that I like to talk about because it's when the creative team needs to put on their audience hat and experience something as though they were a first time audience member. And where most experiences, in my opinion, get tripped up is when the creative team thinks, oh, in this moment, they're going to like, they're going to feel this way. And in this moment, they're going to feel that way. And the truth is, sometimes people do not feel the way that you think they're going to feel. And having a clean and accurate audience barometer saying, you know what, we thought people were going to feel elated in this moment, but actually this is too far into the experience and now they're tired. Having a clean audience barometer is the separator between successful experience and less successful experience. And that's kind of what I do after I create the world. I act as someone who puts on my audience cap and I walk through and think, is this really the way that people are going to feel? And I think that like, you know, you cannot drink the Kool-Aid of your own experience. You have to really say, you know what? I thought this was going to be cool. It actually turns out it's terribly boring. What do we do? <laughs> you know, you have to be <laughs> honest. You have to be too, super honest and just say like, you know what? Okay, pivot, you know, let's, let's do it. What are we going to do? Right. And I think sometimes we're in too big a hurry to get something up and out the door and don't take the time as business people to do that walkthrough and to have that customer experience research, learnings. I wanted to get into some specific examples of some of the projects that you've done where there was a sales goal at the end of the day, especially a couple that I attended myself, so we can talk about that, such as the Alexander Hamilton Archive of Family Letters and Manuscript Sale that happened at Sotheby's, which was a very cool exhibition that you created that told the story of Hamilton's life through hundreds of documents that were passed down through his family for generations. And I remember that there were some really wild things in it, like a lock of Hamilton's hair with a letter from his wife. And the way that you presented it caused the audience to really discover these things on their own, like it wasn't really in your face. And then all of a sudden you're looking at a lock of his hair. So that was really interesting to me. And because at the end of the day, the goal was to encourage people to purchase these documents and things. And then the other show that blew me away there was the Treasures from Chatsworth exhibition, which featured masterworks from this great collection at the Chatsworth House in Britain. Those items were not for sale, but there was a companion sale happening, like in the gallery next door there, called Inspired by Chatsworth. And that was full of art and decorative objects, and it turned out to be a big success. So, you know, I kept thinking about how did you relate the sale goal to the exhibitions in these cases? Well, those are actually two really interesting and very different projects. But what's cool about the question is that it, it's dealing with the same institution, you know, Sotheby's. So I think that with each of the projects, I started in that same kind of therapy phase, the, the question asking, information gathering phase. And you're right. I mean, the thing about the Hamilton sale is it was the centerpiece of a bigger ongoing sale called Americana Week. And part of your job when you're kind of co-curating and creative directing an experience is to just learn about most, if not all of the objects. And in the Hamilton sale in particular, not only were there hundreds of letters back and forth between Hamilton and other key figures of his life, but there were also literally, I think, over a thousand different objects in Americana. So in that experience, part of my goal was to just organize how people were going to go through the five, six, seven floors of the building, the, the infrastructure that was Sotheby's or that is Sotheby's on the Upper East Side. 
So it was just about how do you organize it? How do you get a patron who's there maybe looking for a manuscript from Hamilton? How do you get them to know where they're going? But how do you get someone who's looking for a chair, an armoire from the early 1800s to get to go where they want to go? And is there some form of a connective kind of tissue that you can create, whether it's color coding or design? We actually created this very, very abstract riff on an American flag installation that literally stretched from the very top floor all the way down to the lobby and kind of welcomed people up the main escalator to let them know that the entire building was laced together literally with this installation. So people always knew they were part of the Americana week, but then trying to filter them off with proper signage and literally color coding. You know, if you're interested in the Hamilton stuff, follow this color. The thing about the Hamilton sale in particular is it kind of sold itself. And it was, I think around 2016, right at the red hot portion of Hamilton, the musical. And so I think the goal was to sell every object, but also it was about how to increase the sales price. And the way that we did it, I think, was kind of creating a subtle dialogue with those pieces. Here's a letter from Angelica Schuyler to Eliza Hamilton, you know, the, her sister to her, to Hamilton's wife. And there was like really beautifully written sign cards that sort of synthesize what the letters say, because not all of it was like well written necessarily or, or easily legible. And so creating some form of an emotional dialogue with these things. This is a, a letter from a woman whose son has just been shot and she's not aware that he's gonna make it. Or this is a letter from Hamilton to George Washington of Hamilton's version of a speech that he thinks that George Washington should give. Those things are incredibly interesting and important. And what's so interesting about working at Sotheby's in both cases is that you're not dealing with fake things. So a lot of my life, whether it's working in the theater or working for pop stars or working in music videos, you're dealing with the attempt at making artifacts look and feel real. Here you are actually trying to sell a document written by the one and only Alexander Hamilton, given to the one and only George Washington. And a lot of those things carry true visceral weight. You just need to find a way to kind of frame it for a 2016 audience. Similar, but also a little bit decoupled from that idea, the Treasures of Chatsworth project had a very different goal. You're right. The goal was to eventually, hopefully filter people into the parallel sale that was going on, inspired by Chatsworth. But the real truth is Sotheby's had a different goal. Sotheby's and Chatsworth partnered and they had not the same goal. Chatsworth, which is this unbelievable 400 plus year old stately manor in the north of England, it is one of the richest, most textured, most highly detailed, incredible buildings and grounds, but also is representative of literally something like 17 generations of some of the greatest art collectors on the planet. So what you experience when you go to Chatsworth in England is one of the most stunningly layered art collections that you've ever seen. Literally da Vinci's next to big, huge sculptures. Basically every single person who was or is somebody in the art world has something hanging in that home. And it was my job to try and bring over some of the greatest hits, but to try and give the patron at Sotheby's a feeling of what it would be like to actually walk through Chatsworth, which is an absolute impossibility. Even if you took a perfect photograph and blew them up the size and scale that they are, you would never be able to bring something like 400 years of history accurately. So part of what happened was when I went to Chatsworth and walked and met with the Duke and Duchess and talked to them about their specific goals, and by the way, their specific goals were to try and increase tourism over to Chatsworth. Their specific goals were to try and bring part of their collection over to obviously entertain and delight New Yorkers. And they also wanted to try and create awareness about some of their own foundation work. Right. So you really had two clients and two goals in one project. Totally. So, so there was all that from the Chatsworth folk. And then the Sotheby's folk, their goal was they were celebrating a big anniversary. They had also spent tens of millions of dollars on a massive, beautiful renovation. And they wanted to show off the space. 
And they also wanted to bring people to a pretty major departure installation for them in a traditionally slow time during the kind of spring, summer months. They wanted to like increase just foot traffic. And then of course they had the sale. And those things don't necessarily work in concert with each other. I realized there was no possible way to accurately recreate any single wall or any single piece. But one morning I was sitting in at the Chatsworth house and I started to become fascinated by all of the tiny little architectural details, whether it was the foot of uh, the throne or a corner of a room or a huge piece of molding or layered wallpaper. And what I thought was, if I can't accurately recreate anything from Chatsworth, what I can do is blow up these incredibly made hand carved details and I could blow them up, kind of supersize them so that the thing that I brought to New York was almost like a magnifying glass into certain beautiful elements of the room. And what I thought was interesting is as we worked with the curators and the conservators at Chatsworth and we chose the pieces that would eventually come over, we tried to blow up the textures and the surfaces and the color palette that each one of the pieces of art sits in in Chatsworth. So if there's a Freud painting, and there is, at Chatsworth House, and it's in one of the hallways with this beautiful green background and this interesting hand-painted wallpaper, we would literally recreate that wallpaper so that you would get a sense of the context at which you would normally see these pieces of art hung in Chatsworth. And I think it was successful partially because people are suckers for miniatures and people are suckers for oversized things. And we blew up that aforementioned hand-carved throne's foot to be about 18 feet tall. So there we had the Duchess's tiara, this gorgeous diamond encrusted piece of jewelry in a vitrine, but the vitrine was literally a gold-leafed, fully dimensional hand-carved throne foot. And that was like a really big wow, I think. When you walked in, I mean, Susan, you saw it. Like when you walk in, it was like, we got to make a pact with the audience that we were going to deliver respectful curation of these literally priceless objects. I mean, there was a Da Vinci sketch there that we had to take care of all these pieces so much, but we were going to infuse it into a totally modern, totally exciting environment. And I think that it did, it, it achieved all of the goals of both clients because it certainly fanned the flame of interest for people saying, wait, what is this Chatsworth thing? How do I, oh my God, if I'm ever in, you know, north of London, I might actually take that train up and go see this thing, or this seems like really interesting and certainly got a lot of word of mouth and brought a lot more people to Sotheby's. So, I, and I think the sale went really well. So in the end, I think it achieved all of those things, but it really came from having like very deep personal conversations with both the heads of Sotheby's that were putting on the experience and also the Chatsworth folk. Right. Now, it was jaw-droppingly gorgeous. And having been at Chatsworth and spent time with the Duke and Duchess as well, it totally worked. And I think that you also achieved something that is one of my big pet peeves, you know, about pop-ups and, and exhibitions in general, which is you helped the audience move through the space in a way where they kind of understood what was going on and they knew why they were there. You know, it always bothers me when I walk into something and I just, I don't get it. What am I supposed to do? What can I buy here? Those questions shouldn't happen. There was an interactive component of Chatsworth that used iPads. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So layering onto what you just talked about, how do people understand who they are, who they're supposed to be in these experiences is a big, it's a big question that needs to be answered right off the bat. Right. So when we started the walkthrough of the Chatsworth experience, we actually started with old home movies of the Duke, the Duchess, the Lord, all of these people learning to ski on the grounds of Chatsworth, like these old black and white movies. And we did that intentionally because I think when you talk about Duke and Duchess, especially in America, there's sort of like people maybe go to like Downton Abbey. They maybe they go to like these strange pop culture references where it's like sort of like they kind of see royals and they kind of know about Queen Elizabeth, but they don't really know who the Duke is, but they know it's someone fancy. And so we chose these home movies as a way to humanize the Duke and Duchess. These are not Duke and Duchess random. They are actual people who live in this home. Right. The pact that we made with the audience up front was that. 
first, we wanted to let you know these are actual real people who really do live right now. Those were, I loved those. Those were, that was yeah, so those interesting. Yeah, were so sweet yeah. and amazing. Here's yeah. someone learning how to ski. Here's right. someone opening up Christmas presents. Like, it's sort of like, look, they're just like you and I. They do the same things as us. And also, this is hard. I mean, maintaining this house and collection and keeping all of this in the family, it's, it's not easy. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an impossible task and it's incredibly selfless and they're born into it. And so this idea that there are 17, 18 generations of artwork, I actually asked the Duke as we were walking around the grounds, I said, when you look at this stuff, do you have any connection to it? Like, what is your real and true connection to it? And he said, listen, there's some of this stuff that is like world famous art. I can recognize it as that. He said, other than the stuff that we purchased or commissioned or acquired and the stuff that my father, maybe his grandfather did, the rest of it is sort of wall furniture. He said, you know, no one ever asked me that question before because the obvious answer that people assume is I love it all. I have a relationship to all of it. I mean, some of it was acquired hundreds and hundreds of years before and just has always been there. But he has, by the way, a responsibility, as you said, to maintain it and to keep it all safe. And that's a massive responsibility. That was part of the goal, the aforementioned goal of what the, the Treasures of Chatsworth experience was, because they're trying to raise money for their not-for-profit that actually takes care of all this stuff and allows the world to see some of this priceless art. And so that was actually really interesting to have that experience. But then in the next gallery we made, I think what you're referring to is this kind of virtual portrait gallery. And this virtual portrait gallery that we made is we wanted to explain to people what does it mean to be the 17th generation in line and what is a Duke? And so at Chatsworth House, there are all these incredibly, you can imagine, big, old, beautiful paintings of all the Dukes. We couldn't bring those over. And so we did it digitally. We got incredibly high res photographs of these portraits. We recreated a big, long wall of the actual wallpaper that hangs at the Chatsworth House in this particular gallery. And then through augmented reality technology, we were able to pick up an iPad and anywhere where you put it in front of this wall, you would see these portraits show up and there'd be an audio guide along with it. It would say like the seventh Duke. And this is what this person was into. And this is the kind of art that he collected. And this is the kind of life that he lived. And he's responsible for this piece of art or this piece of furniture or this actual renovation to the Chatsworth house and you'd move down the line and you get another piece of history and so through this interaction we were able to not only infuse a little bit of modernity a little bit of problem solving like how do you show 15 paintings without the paintings ever being there but also we were able to set up that like hey this is something to do here you know you always are asking the question with these pop-up experiences in the end it doesn't matter what anyone writes about them it doesn't matter what anyone says good or bad. It really doesn't. The real question I always ask myself is, would you recommend it? You know, we only have a certain amount of things we can do in a day. We only have a certain amount of things that we can recommend without being the boy or girl that cried wolf. And I feel like in the end, you ask yourself if you're making these experiences, is it good enough to have someone recommend it to their sister who's coming into town for a weekend or their good friend who sees quote unquote everything? And adding that digital component where you were able to like be complicit in how you were going to learn about this story was really fun. It was fun, entertaining, and educating all in one little moment. And it was the kind of thing that not only, oh, you can go see a Freud, you can go see a, a Da Vinci, but you can also hold this iPad and do this really cool thing. And I think for that particular audience at Sotheby's, that was a new experience for them and yeah. something that became recommendable. Absolutely. It really worked for the stickiness of the whole event and for people who wanted to go a little bit deeper. And it felt authentic, you know, and that's something that we strive for. How do you feel about pressure for people to have these photo moments for selfies or photos of themselves and a friend in front of these things? I mean, do you think about that or does that just happen? Of course. I mean, you can, you cannot make a pop-up experience right now without the client saying, where will the stunning Instagram moment be? Or where will the shareable moment be? Or where will the photo op be? What's interesting about it is people don't really yet know what to do with those impressions. And they don't think about things in a more holistic way 
because it's kind of new, right? So 10 years ago, when we were doing experiential work, everyone, like no business had an actual line item for it. It would just sort of be part of advertising. And if you could get a really cool business owner to say, you know what, we think we're going to take a chance at projection mapping this environment, have people walk through it. It was rare. Now people understand that immersing themselves in a brand actually converts, but it's still this like funky thing of like, wait a minute, does it convert because people are sharing online? Does it convert because like the pictures become iconic? How does it actually work? And I think people haven't quite figured out what the driver is and what the conversion rate needs to be in order for someone to be considered successful, right? Everyone's looking for a return on investment, but they don't quite understand what that return can be. And these things aren't always one-to-one. So I try and help my clients understand just because you're making an experience doesn't mean that you cannot be capturing the experience digitally. And then what you're doing is creating, as you said earlier, it's like you're creating the ability to carve up and create many, many more money-making endeavors from that experience. So you might be making a movie, you might be making, in this case, you know, in the case of Chatsworth, a digital portrait gallery that can live on forever. You certainly, if you do it right, you can own a bunch of hashtags and a bunch of kind of anchors online visually. And I think that that's where people don't understand that you need to be having these conversations ahead of time. Because if it's, if you're having the conversations once the thing is up and running, you're oftentimes behind the eight ball. So I think about it a lot with regard to these big, huge, important, obviously ephemeral things that we're making. How do you capture them when they're up? I make it a point to photograph everything beautifully. I make it a point to capture and and video the experiences because you just never know how you're going to expand the brand based on the things. But there isn't a conversation that goes on in which you're not talking about how can you, you know, where are people going to stop and take pictures? And oftentimes the gross version is where are they going to stop to take pictures and how are we going to have them pay for those pictures if they're really that stunning? But that's a different conversation. But I mean, you're right. You're creating content that can live on for years and have value for years for, for the client. And I think there's an opportunity to weave in things like loyalty programs and offers, you know, in a way that enhances a sale or enhances an engagement. Yeah, I mean, I think for your audience, I would say this. If you're going to go through the effort and the exercise of birthing something into the world that is a walkthrough experience, the thing that I so frequently hear my clients say is, we don't have the money to store it. We don't have the money to make traveling cases. We don't have, we're going to do this once and we're going to throw it out, blah, 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 whatever that is. Really have a conversation about, you know, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. And that Chatsworth experience, as an example, we made this, when I say stunning, I mean, that one sculpture in particular of the foot of the throne was so stunning. And we talked about, do we save it? Do we keep it? Do we, you know, what do we do? That's amazing. In the end, we threw it out. But if we owned that object, we could make that the centerpiece of multiple exhibitions. We could literally travel a tiny version of Treasures of Chatsworth all around the world with that and then mix in other pieces of art. And so for another $10,000, I'm making that number up, we could have built a carrying case, stored it, and then brought it out, reassembled it very easily, and we would have had that asset forever. And so, so much of it is kind of trusting that you can hit multiple birds with one stone. I want to rewind back to when we were talking about technology and innovations in technology and digital platforms, especially now, you know, in this world that we're living in, the pandemic, it blew me away when a couple of months ago, Walmart was fighting with Oracle and Microsoft for the chance to buy TikTok. I mean, that really said that digital media and digital experiences are forever integrated with shopping and commerce. So most of the pop-up activations that are happening in Q4 and through the holidays and what we're working on for next year will have a live streaming or a hybrid component of both in real life and digital media. So I wondered if you could give us some examples of, of how you're working with those platforms as well. Sure. I'll give you a couple. First of all, I'm working with an agency right now who have a few clients, I'm not going to tell you whom, but they are 
some of them are specifically tethered to holiday experiences and some of them are kind of lifestyle. And what's so interesting is we're actually working both from the premise that the entire world for the last you know nine or 10 months has been, we have re-educated through the COVID-19 pandemic people to interact online in a way that you would think 10 months ago was absolutely impossible. We have now retrained people to just be online, whether it's Zoom conversations, Zoom benefits, Zoom experiences, online digital platforms. And that ecosystem has been completely altered and changed, perhaps forever. People aren't even going into offices and all those things. So we have a really interesting ability to deliver things digitally. At the same time, I will tell you, those very same agencies recognize that there's a huge consumer fatigue. And they're like, oh, if I just have one more invitation to do one more thing online, I'm going to scream. And so finding ways to bring experiences that amplify people's brands out into the real world, even if it's in the middle of a parking lot, open air and six foot apart, the conversion rate on those things is through the roof because people are just looking for something to do, right? Get in my car, drive to this thing, experience a brand, get a cool picture, have something that I did today as opposed to sitting online. I mean, I'm working on an Elf on the Shelf experience, the, the popular Christmas brand, and the entire premise was, can we get it up for Christmas 2020, which obviously is preparing to be kind of fraught with who knows what's going to go on with the pandemic. The entire idea was tethered to the idea of, can we do something in a car? So you are socially distanced, you are safe, but we can still deliver access to this brand. We'll sell a lot of products, we'll sell a bunch of tickets, but we're going to have people drive through the experience at the Fairflex in Los Angeles. And we knew that we needed, we were not going to capitalize this experience and this pop-up without the safety of knowing that the whole thing was going to happen in your car. So it could never be canceled due to like whatever the, you know, the pandemic threw us. I also feel like digitally, there's lots of other ways to kind of carve up the original Apple, if you will. You know, I always talk about Hamilton as this incredible seed that Lynn wrote and that we all helped him kind of midwife into the world. If the brand is strong and if the seed is strong, every product you make from it has the potential to be as strong and have that much more kind of a, of a global footprint. So as an example, Hamilton was a Broadway musical or is a Broadway musical. There was a book that was a top selling book made of it. There was a documentary of the making of it. There was the Disney plus movie of it. There was a soundtrack. There was an additional soundtrack created based on some of the music, but redone by popular artists. There was an experience, an exhibition, every single thing that has come from that apple, that seed has been incredible. And so getting back to your question about the digital platform, Beetlejuice, which is another show of mine on Broadway, it was doing kind of moderate to okay ticket sales on Broadway. And I was just the set designer of that show, but I saw an interesting trend happening with TikTok, which is that my then 14-year-old daughter was like listening to the Beetlejuice soundtrack over and over and over again on TikTok. And the TikTok sound clips of Beetlejuice had been streamed like 100 million times. 100 million is a lot of times for a show that isn't doing huge business. I would have imagined that Hamilton or Dear Evan Hansen was doing that, but it was strange that there was this kind of like white space. And so I took it upon myself in my office to ask the producers if I could go in and take digital portraits of all of the characters in Beetlejuice, the stage show, and make these really fun kind of interactive, moving motion graphic videos. It was very cheap to do. We did it in front of a green screen. We grabbed the characters while the show was going on, just somewhere in the back of the theater. We captured them all. My office did all of the motion graphics work. And then we made a digital portrait campaign and between the digital portrait campaign and the TikTok videos, Beetlejuice turned around and became a massive Broadway hit. So here, normally, traditionally, the advertising and the outreach for a Broadway show is about the New York Times ad and just like hopefully great word of mouth. But Beetlejuice came totally in its own way to being a bona fide Broadway hit through the digital marketplace, so which smart. is like bizarre yeah. right it's bizarre to think <laughs> that like 
usually the show's a big hit and then people want the soundtrack and then they love the soundtrack. This was the opposite. It's like TikTok and Instagram planted this seed and these earworms into people's heads. And then they thought, oh, people started dressing up as Beetlejuice and Lydia. And then the next thing you know, we're selling a ton of tickets. Right. That's where the audience is. That's where they're getting their music. And we're seeing that to be true absolutely in fashion and beauty, led first by the simple demos that people started putting up, brand ambassadors and influencers, and that quickly turned into a sales platform which is growing every minute. Well, it's so interesting because we all know that, I think we all have a sense that the right 12 people tweeting or posting about a thing converts better than any single successful advertisement, even during the Super Bowl, whatever, whatever that is, right? And so that's kind of like the strange world that we're living in, which is like, if you can marry a brand to the right voice that can amplify it, it can be around the world 12 times faster than any kind of advertisement. The trick is how do you then capture, and this is the sort of like secret sauce, how do you then capture the fact that that happened and use that itself as an asset? So it's one thing to have Kim Kardashian tweet about your thing. It's another thing to let everyone know that Kim Kardashian tweeted about your thing. And I think that's the world that we're living in right now. Absolutely. It's taken on a life after the post. That's right. The marketing of it. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it's really the future of retail. I think so. Well, because brick and mortar is complicated right now and made more complicated by the pandemic. And I think there's a saying in the theater, you can't make a living, but you can make a killing. And weirdly, I feel like the same thing because of Amazon and all the giants. I feel like it's the same kind of thing. It's like, if you have an idea, you can't really make a living unless you're making a killing. And so that's like we're in the business of helping people make that killing by converting. It's sort of a joke, but like you think like everyone starts with zero followers, right? And zero impressions. And how do you get that word out? And that's where I think the pop-up world is so interesting because so much of our time is spent staring at these phones and doing insular singular experience like mental gymnastics right all we're doing is looking at these screens all the time and really at the root of it i think humans are dying to be told shut off your phone we're going to capture your attention span for somewhere between like 30 minutes and like an hour and in the end if they take a picture and say to someone it's that combination of like fomo slash humble brag, right? If you can say, I was told to turn off my phone, but it was the most incredible thing happened to me. And I got to like immerse myself in X brand and I got this cool picture. That helps sell on a deep and profound level because people right now are suffering from, tell me what's cool, tell me what I should do, point me in the direction. And that's where pop-ups are everything. Right. Because you can say, this is the cool thing to do. Yeah. And then give me the tools to let me continue to engage with that brand. Totally. Exactly. I mean, it's amazing, you know, what you and, and other creative people are doing during the pandemic. I noted that Dries Van Noten opened his first store in the U.S. in downtown L.A. a couple of weeks ago. And it's wow. an 8,000 square foot experiential space that he designed remotely from Europe where People can come and buy clothes, but they're also viewing art. They're seeing collections of other designers, things like tabletop. And he has this very cool music program where he has different people curating vinyl. So it's important and it's possible. And we crave those experiences. People started to see that they couldn't have a store experience. They was like, you'd walk into a store and they'd say, hey, do you want to have a bottle of water? Right. It started with that. <laughs> right. It started with, can I get you a bottle of water? Or maybe a and glass it, of champagne. Right. And then maybe it was a glass of champagne. And then occasionally there was like a musician in the corner. And then the next thing you know, there was like seemed to be like some version where there was always a coffee shop in a store because people want coffee more than they want, you know, and they want they want to like look around. And then there was the famous like urban outfitters like come and like read all of our books and maybe you'll walk away with like a lamp or something. I, I think that like there isn't an artist on like on the planet right now that I talk to who's like excited to be just a singer. Everyone has a slash after their name. Singer, entrepreneur, slash this. Everyone is an actor, slash this, slash this, slash this. And it's the same thing. No one wants a concert. They want a concert experience. No one wants 
just a commercial. They want a walkthrough, blah, 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 blah. And I think that's true. It's like, how do you get people to get off their butts and get to a store? Well, you get them to go to the store if the, if part of being in the store is an experience you cannot get online. So if it's music, art galleries, things to read, places to chill, that's what they're going to deliver. You know, stores are going to become lounges. It's going to be like the Soho House store, you know? Right. And if you can then walk through the Nike experience and put in some of these experiential built-ins, it will be something like, now you're at the Nike store, you're shopping for a pair of sneakers, but you get to go inside the tennis simulator and feel like it's like to return Serena Williams' serve. And you're like, holy crap, she serves really fast. I also want to buy these sneakers. But you need a way to draw people in. You need a way to like say, come interface with the brand. And that's where the gets back to the therapy part. So I would say to Nike, if they were my client asking for three installations in their store, I would say, what do you want them to feel? Part of what I think, you know, someone might say, oh, it'd be so cool to like feel like it's returning Serena Williams to serve. But I would say, isn't the brand about aspiration? Isn't the brand about growth? Isn't the brand about health and lifestyle? I would say maybe it's not about what it would be like to have her serve come at it, you, but what would it feel like to be Serena Williams? Right. Right. What would it feel like to make that serve? There's a way to flip it on its head and ask yourself, how could you deliver that aspirational quality to it, to the brand? And so getting deep, deep down at what their goals are, because that's the thing is like, it goes back to be like Mike, right? You wanted those Nikes because you thought if you put those shoes on, you might be able to jump a little higher or play a little bit more like Michael Jordan, right? And that that's the cool. That's the cool that we're trying to deliver. Well, let's talk about your cool for a second. I know that you are incredibly talented and that you think about how things work and you think about design all the time. But what some people don't know about you is that you're also a fine artist in your own right as a painter. And you were an athlete or are an athlete and a true fan of 80s rock bands. <laughs> yeah well i'm only a fan of 80s rock bands if you're coming along with me to hang out in the concert <laughs> that was fun you know the thing about athletics is that was my way into kind of quiet achievement growing up i felt like there are very few places where you can lose yourself truly and get space mental space that do that for you like working out running or competing. You're not thinking about the next deadline when you're out on a field of competition. Similarly, you're not thinking about those things when you're playing a musical instrument, which I also do. And the thing about painting, this fine art thing that I started doing a few years ago is I realized that every single thing I have ever made in my professional career is a collaboration. Even if I was commissioned to do a piece for someone's home, it was seen and filtered through their hopes and dreams for that room or for that apartment or for that backyard. And so I realized when I sat down at my first blank canvas with oil paint, not having any idea what I would do, that the only person I was collaborating with was myself. And it was such a weird experience because I have, you know, I was a trained scenic artist. I've painted every single thing you can imagine from recreation of fine art masters to wood, textures, murals, everything. But I had never done it for myself. And so even just understanding what my personal aesthetic was, what I was trying to do, if I, if I was halfway through a 10-month long painting and then I wanted to just splash red paint over it and be done with it, I could do that. And there was something that was so terrifying and humbling about that. I realized I'm never going to be a great painter because it's not my job and I don't have the time to do that. And probably I don't have the, the real raw talent. But what I also realized was it could be something that was 100% from me. And there was just a beautiful kind of expression to that. And I have never found any other medium where I can lose myself for like 10, 12 hours, never even stand up from the, from the canvas and then look around and think, oh my God, like the sun has set. And so for me, that was actually just like a beautiful, almost meditative expression that I, that I found. And I really, really value whenever 
I find myself kind of losing my way these days. I try and find a couple of hours to sit at a, at a canvas and do something. It actually happened to me the other day and I realized half of my paintings, I go in with a real specific idea. I'm going to paint this thing. And then half of them are just artistic expressions in which I let my hand go. And in the ones where I just let my hand go, I find that the breathing becomes literally meditative. And that's like a massive help for me. And I think so many of us have had an opportunity to discover that meditation through this crazy pandemic time that we've been living through because we've had more time and that impacts our creativity in our, in our work and in our lives. It's amazing that you have found that and you're giving yourself that time to do that. So that has got me thinking, if David Korins could open a pop-up today, what would it be? Would it be a store or an exhibition? You know, what would you feature there? What, what would you do? Well, so the business part of me makes me think I have spent the last 10 months of the pandemic or nine months or however many months it's been really thinking about creating and capturing new intellectual property. So part of me thinks, oh, well, I'll obviously make my pop up one of these things and I'll try and sell them. But that seems sounds too easy. I think the, the pop-up that I would do probably would have to do with, I've recently been making these kind of art objects that are somewhere between home decor and sculpture. And they're just for my, I mean, it started as a way of like, I moved a couple of years ago and I had an empty space and I thought, well, what would I want there? And so I devised like a table made of lights, let's say. And then somewhere else I had this empty wall and I made this kind of golden geometric object. And then I made this other thing and then I made this other thing. So I have about 10 pieces in my home that I conceived of and made just because I thought they were pleasurable. But what's interesting is when I have people over, they are in fact the 10 pieces that everyone stops and looks at. And we talk about them. And I think it's partially because they're obviously, you know, one of a kind pieces, but partially because there's something in them that I think begs to be discussed and that they are dynamic and interesting. And so I think if I were going to make a pop-up, I would probably just kind of give people the experience of seeing these things and seeing how they react to them. Are we launching David Corrin's home today? I think we might be just kind of putting our toe in the water and be giving myself like one more year to make five more objects and then we're going for it. Great. All right. I'm definitely... Yeah, you've got, you've got the exclusive though. If Thank that happens, you. you got the exclusive. I'm so, I'm so excited. I can't wait to work with you on that. Wow. That was awesome. Thank you so, so much for sharing these ideas with us today and just appreciate you being with us. I appreciate being here and I, and I really love talking to you about this stuff and I think what you're doing is really, really great. Thanks for listening to the Pop-Up Biz Podcast, where something new is always popping. For guest ideas or to innovate your next pop-up, email me at susan at popupsummer.com. Also, head over to our social media channels on Facebook and Instagram at Pop-Up Summer. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on Apple. It's easy. Head over to your Apple Podcast app, scroll through the episodes, click on five stars, and leave a review.